0: From the Preservation Maryland Studios in the Historic Podcast District of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. Nestled among the verdant fields and winding streams of the Genesee River Valley in upstate New York, is one of America's largest living history museums. Founded in 1966, the Genesee Country Village and Museum features 68 historic structures from the 19th century move from locations throughout Western New York, a gallery of sporting art, and a nature center that all attracts more than 90,000 visitors each year. On this week's PreserveCast, we're headed back to the 19th century to talk to Genesee Country Village and Museum CEO Becky Whaley and curator of collections Peter Wisby about the future of open-air museums and the historic trades. Hey, it's Nick here. And I want to thank those listeners who have answered my request these past few episodes by making a quick donation at PreserveCast.org. This podcast is produced by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit, and we depend on your support. So please consider making a quick contribution today. And if you like us, give us a five-star rating on your podcast app. That really helps and keeps us preserving. Becky Whaley is president and CEO of Genesee Country Village and Museum, the largest living history museum in New York State, located 25 miles southwest of Rochester, where she manages 45 year-round staff and over 150 seasonal staff and a budget of over $3.5 million. Prior to joining the museum in 2016, Becky worked in the University of Rochester's Advancement Office for over 15 years, most recently as the Executive Director of Donor Relations and Stewardship. She also serves on the board of trustees of Allendale Columbia School and was a board member at the museum for 18 years before joining the staff. Peter Wisby is curator of collections at Genesee Country Village and Museum. He earned a master's in history museum studies from SUNY Oneonta Cooperstown graduate program and a master's in early American culture from the University of Delaware Winterthur program. He has held curatorial positions at the Monmouth County Historical Association, the Worcester Historical Museum, and was the first executive director of the Seward House Museum in Auburn, New York. He's been an adjunct instructor at RIT's museum studies program since 2010. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast. And today we're very excited to be joined by two of the members of the leadership team from Genesee Country Village, Becky Whaley, the president and CEO of Genesee Country Village and Museum, and Peter Wisby, the curator of collections at the Village and Museum. And we're going to get to know a little bit more about um, this very large and very important living history museum. Um, But before we do that, and before we get into the the history of the museum and and the work that both of you do there, I'm uh, curious, maybe we'll start with Becky on this. Um, I'd like to get to know both of you. What was your path to this work, and and what got you so interested in preservation in museums? Um,
1: well, my path is um, the family that I was born into. So my grandfather Jack actually founded the museum in 1966, and so that predates me in the family. And uh, I grew up going to the museum and and have just you know many many memories of. Events and activities there throughout the years. And my first job out of college was actually at the George Eastman Museum. So I had a, um, a, a bent towards museums from that point. I, from there, went on to work at the University of Rochester in their advancement office for about 20 years while also simultaneously serving on the, the museum board. And then when our um, past president, decided he was going to retire, I said that I would step in and um, take on an interim role and then we'd see how it goes. And uh, now, uh, four years and 16 days later, I am still here.
0: Right. So you were, um, like you said, you were kind of born into this. And I think that's an interesting part of the story. We'll we'll talk a little bit more about that because obviously the, the founding is not only... Uh, an interesting story but it's it's sort of like family history for you which is really really unique and interesting um, Peter um, how does one become a curator and uh, what what led you to that unique line of work
2: well my um, I grew up in a history family my father was a, a history professor we always visited museums on vacations and um in college as a history major, I, I didn't want to go into that kind of other family avenue of teaching, but I loved history. And so a family friend suggested looking at museum work. So I began working at a living history museum in Massachusetts and then um, made the jump to graduate school uh, at uh, Cooperstown, New York, in the Cooperstown graduate program. Uh, and then began my museum career. Uh, went back to school uh, for a second master's degree uh, in the Winterthur program at the Winterthur Museum in Delaware, and um, have been in museums for over thirty years. So it's been uh, been great. I've seen the profession grow substantially. I've you know helped to uh, bring students along as well to kind of follow the same paths and to see. The the growth of museum training programs and resources available that I didn't have, uh, you know, back in the '80s has been really wonderful to see.
0: Yeah, and we'll definitely get into sort of the the scope of your work there and talk about the collection and and how unique that is. Um, But before we do that, I mean, maybe we'll we'll turn back here to Becky for a minute. Um, For someone who's never visited, and and I should say, I was I was telling Peter and Becky before we we uh, hit record um, you know in the interest of full disclosure Genesee Country Village holds a very special place in my heart spent a lot of time there as a kid and um, really fell in love with history there so I, I certainly know what it looks like and what it feels like to visit there but for someone who's never been there before um, could you give us a description of, of the village the the size the look the type of buildings and, and what the experience is for a visitor coming there
1: sure So we are the largest living history museum in New York state and the third largest in the country. And we take that based on the number of buildings that were moved to the site. And so we have 68 historic buildings that were moved um, from throughout the Western New York area. And the thing that makes us um, different from a place like Sturbridge or Williamsburg is that our buildings and virtually the whole 19th century. So we have everything from a one-room pioneer log cabin to a Victorian mansion and and everything in between. So they are um, laid out on our grounds in... time frames. So we have three different time frames spanning the full century. And so people can, you can go through in any order that you like. You can start at the beginning, you can start in the middle, you can go to your favorite building. Um, but, but it's laid out, you know, the village is roughly somewhere between 30 and 40 acres that um, we have there. And we have all different kinds of buildings. So we have the whole range of houses that I um, mentioned earlier. We also have Two school buildings, two churches, um, a whole range, also of um, trades. So a potter, a tinsmith, a blacksmith, a cooper, and and so it's really giving you coming to visit us gives you kind of the full full range of things that may have happened in the 19th century, and and makes it great for us because we can talk about as we interpret. All sorts of different, um, different topics and and things that would have happened here in Western New York in that time frame. What I'll also add is that in addition to our historic village, we have a gallery of um, that has an outstanding collection of sporting and wildlife art, and a collection of about 3,500 3, pieces of nineteenth century clothing. And then we also have a nature center that has. About 175 acres with trails and natural habitat. So we have we are we are more than just the village in in terms of the larger museum setting that we have.
0: And and roughly how many people visit on an annual basis? I guess this year's an anomaly, but. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Um, Normally, we have about 98,000 visitors. That's what we had in 2019. Um, Lots from the upstate New York area, but then we also have visitors from throughout the country and throughout the world as well. And so, you know, we, we normally are open from May, Mother's Day, until October with special events, the rest of the year. obviously, again, this year is um, a completely different situation, but that's what we what we did before and what our plan is to go back to
0: so um, Peter, you know, Becky gives us a really nice bird's-eyed view of the campus and the buildings and also, you know, the fact that you have the sporting collection and the um, clothing collection. As a curator, what's your role in this site? How how big is the collection that you actually care for? And maybe give us a sense of the types of objects that you preserve or you're responsible for preserving.
2: Absolutely. Um, so, in our, in our collection, we... We feature uh, both decorative and fine arts, the furnishings of all of the the buildings from tools and and, uh, trade tools and uh, craft workshop material. But then also the buildings themselves, a fair number of them are actually accessioned as part of our collection. So um, I'm in charge of both the old stuff, within the buildings as well as supervising our preservation carpentry crew uh, and working with contractors on painting and roofing and uh, preservation of the structures themselves.
0: Right, because, I mean, taking care of one building is hard enough, but you have at least 68, and then that probably doesn't even include the outbuildings, too.
2: uh, There's about 34 principal buildings, and then privies, woodsheds, barns, outbuildings, um, many unstaffed uh, structures, but but they all require kind of the same principled care that that we give to even some of our uh, major uh, structures and, and houses. So, it is quite Different. We've been um, actively pursuing uh, aggressive repairs and and painting, but it's there's always something else that needs to be done. Um, the next windstorm, the next rainstorm may reveal issues with old buildings. As as you know, um, there's no rest when you're the owner of a single building, and and so having. 68 historic structures can be, you know, a, a matter of prioritizing where we, we uh, put our preservation money.
0: And, and what is that? What does that budget look like? What? Do, how much? Or, I mean, I don't know if it's dollars or projects, but how would you define how, how much preservation work you're doing on an annual basis to the buildings themselves?
2: Um, it does vary um, depending on the on the project. Um, but we're in know, between two hundred to $400,000 a year for various projects. Uh, some we supplement with uh, grants. Some we um, uh, can do the work ourselves. Some we buy uh, supplies in bulk, uh, you know, wherever we can find some dollar savings. We'll, uh, we'll try and implement that. We do, um, for instance, um, use cedar shingles. We found that we can actually purchase them directly from the mill in British Columbia, um, ship them across the country with all of the uh, trade and tariff and transportation costs, and still save about uh, 40% of buying them domestically so and then when we can install them ourselves we'll do that as well but we're always juggling projects and um and visitor needs safety issues as well as uh building concerns
0: yeah it's a it's a it's a huge endeavor obviously to to be that large and have that many buildings um so becky the going back to you for a second here the the museum is founded in 1966 and you know, so much about our world has changed. I think you even said that the founding predated you. Um, but how mm-hmm. how has the museum evolved? um and and maybe sort of as a as a side to that, what kind of plans do you have moving forward? I mean, obviously, you kind of mentioned like you know we hope to get back to ninety eight thousand when uh, the worldwide global pandemic is over, which is understandable. But where have you been? How have you changed and and maybe where are you headed? I mean, that's that's an easy question, right?
1: <laughs> right. No, that's a piece of cake, especially these days. So I would say, um, you know, where, where we started was with the vision of um, a handful of men. So my grandfather, he worked closely with Stuart Bolger, and they brought the buildings to the museum. Um, site and so that happened between 1966 and 1976. We didn't open to the public until 1976. So the focus for for about the first 25 years or so, maybe a little bit more than that, was build up the build up the site, get the buildings in, get them furnished, and um, have something for people to come and see. And that was very successful. But then, kind of to the point that you and Peter just talked about there comes a point where you look at all of these buildings and you say, okay, we're good. We can, you know, we can kind of barely take care of the ones we have. We're doing a good job of it, but it's a never ending process. And so uh, over the past, you know, 15 years or so, a little bit more than that, we have, we have stopped collecting buildings. We have said, we have what we need. Um, obviously, there's, you know, I'm sure there's something else we could add. Peter has, has ideas, um, but he is, he is the biggest proponent of when people call to offer us a building saying, nope, thank you, we're all set. And so, kind of simultaneously with that change from collecting buildings, we also moved from a model of being a, a more of a historic house, a collection of historic houses where you would walk in. You just looked at things and then you walked back out. And we have changed many of our buildings to be more interactive. So our inn is a great example of that. Now you can come in, you can sit down, um, you can even have dinner in there. We have certain evenings um, throughout the uh, year where you can come, you can reserve this space for groups of up to 14 people and you have a period dinner in the inn and then you can go rock, walk around the village at night. And so that um, kind of that changed to a more living history model. But also part of my focus has been on increasing our programming and and diversifying our programming. It's like now we have this infrastructure of all these buildings. And Western New York has you know so many stories that you can tell. So what we're what we're doing and we were doing a good job of it before, but we're trying to do more now is say, let us use these as as vessels to tell these stories that um, you really aren't going to hear anywhere else in the same way that we can do them. And so that's kind of the um, you know the vision for what we've been doing and what we're going to keep doing. Um, you know, in terms of bold plans, um, quite frankly, I think everybody's bold plans have been put on hold for the moment. That's not to say that we don't have one, you know. We don't have ideas of again expanding our programming and um, trying to involve more uh, a more diverse audience in the stories that we're telling and and the ways that we're telling them. But you know, for the moment, we're we're just trying to uh, you know to get some folks to come out and visit us over the next couple months while we're open and make it through twenty twenty.
0: Yeah, and I think I think right now a bold plan is staying alive, right? I mean, that's uh, unfortunately that's kind of where we're at for for a lot of historic places, and you know, if the Williamsburgs of the world are are suffering, um, which are so well resourced, um, you know, it, it's a challenge for for everyone out there. Um, so, Peter, I mean, we kind of talked about this a little bit here, but you know, a big part of maintaining the the buildings and the campus is actually caring for them themselves. I'm curious, uh, specifically to that, you, you mentioned that you have a carpentry crew, but is it difficult finding qualified tradespeople? It's something that we hear a lot about. Are you guys thinking about that? Could the, the site be a, a campus of sort of learning when it comes to that? What, how, how is it working when it comes to the tradespeople who are actually working and repairing historic structures? What, what are the challenges there?
2: It it is a challenge, and it's something that we as a community, a museum community, and a preservation community in uh, Western New York have been talking about, in addition to uh, uh, working with the uh, Landmark Society, uh, which is the Rochester Area Preservation Organization, um, there is one strong uh, window uh, restoration person in the Rochester area. There are two or three um, roofers able to, to do a preservation quality a cedar shingle roof. There are a few masons, and and generally they are, on we have a good plasterer, um, but they're all on the older side, and so we've been trying to encourage uh, preservation training. We've had some discussions with some of the local academic institutions, and uh, and to utilize the resources of the museum um, to uh, as a classroom to help to train you know up and coming craftspeople. Sometimes it starts as a um, as a uh, as a hobby and can grow into a business. Sometimes it just needs to be kind of described to a younger person who might be interested that there is actually work available and jobs available in the preservation field rather than going to strictly um, you know quick construction jobs or things that that for those who are particularly interested the jobs are available and the work is available there is so much 19th century 18th late 18th early 19th century uh, housing stock in western new york state that um, homeowners would like to see prepared the work is available, and it just we need to get that message out to people.
0: Yeah, and, and I'm curious, I mean, who was it, you know, I guess kind of a, maybe a Becky question, but the people who put the buildings together, did they just have the skill sets? Did they hire folks? Who actually, when you were building the campus, did that work? And I mean, I guess thats sort of that has changed a lot since then, but but who did that work originally?
2: They had a number of good craftspeople who came. Um, a lot of it, you know, was on the job training, and then really great supervision from uh, with a team of historic preservation architects, with uh, some of the museum um, administration and staff were historic preservationists, and uh, and then a real attention to detail. So I think one of the The nice things about the look of the village um, was sort of shaped by both uh, Jack Whaley's vision and then our first director uh, was a man named Stuart Bolger who came from historic Bethlehem and had a background in preservation. He had a great eye and loved variation in the landscape. So we have um, from illustrations and from... Uh, book learning. We have the whole variety of outbuildings, sidewalk textures, uh, uh, fences, split rails, board fences. Um, Stewart was really great at kind of directing the look and feel of the historic village, and um, you know, and had the command of the and knowledge to uh, to direct the carpenters to to do uh, work and to reflect
1: his vision.
0: Yeah, it, it really is I mean it's a, it's a really evocative landscape. it's it's sort of like for people who are familiar with like Eric Sloane, it's like walking into an Eric Sloan um, sketch almost um, where you really, really get this sense of, of the past there. Well, why don't we take a quick break here? When we come back, um, we'll talk a little bit about the pandemic and and the landscape of museums moving forward and then we'll do some uh, some fun rapid fire questions and we'll do that right here on Preserve cast. 100 years ago in 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States was signed into law and officially granted 20 million American women the right to vote. This mass expansion in voting rights was the result of generations of intense activism known as the women's suffrage movement that has had a lasting legacy on the continued fight for equality in America. In recognition of the struggles and achievements of a once disenfranchised majority, PreserveCast is honored to share remarkable stories of suffragists within each episode this year. Beyond the Ballot is supported by Preservation Maryland, Gallagher, Avelius, and Jones Attorneys at Law, and the Maryland Historical Trust. To learn more about influential women, past and present, or to donate, please visit BallotAndBeyond.org. This week on Ballot and Beyond, we'll learn about Dr. Lieb Sokol-Diamond, a skilled and dedicated pediatric surgeon in Maryland, read by Ellie Comers-Cowan, Director of Advocacy at Preservation Maryland.
3: Dr. Leeby Sokol Diamond. Dr. Leeby Sokol Diamond was a pioneer in many ways and one of the nation's leading pediatric orthopedic surgeons. Adolf Tornado's so-called Diamond was the only child of Max Sokol and Anne Hirshhorn Sokol, who were deeply involved in helping Jews in Eastern Europe flee their homelands, and resettle in the United States during the 1930s. Libby was born with congenital ring constriction syndrome, which caused the loss of several fingers and toes while in the womb. By the time she was a teenager, she had undergone 25 surgical procedures. She would go on to use those experiences for the rest of her life in surgery, research, and teaching. She once told a colleague, You can either bitch or moan and make everyone around miserable or accept what is reality and get on with your life so-called diamond focused on hand and limb deformities particularly orthopedic aspects of genetic diseases in children similar to her own and a medically underserved group at that time SoCall Diamond was the first female resident at the University of Pennsylvania Hospital and became its first female orthopedic surgical resident in 1960. She was certified by the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery in 1963. Sometimes, she said, it was not working with a disability but gender that would present her biggest challenge. In an interview with Jay Moore Magazine, she said, in retrospect, maybe some of my rough times were because I was a woman. We were tolerated in a physical sense. Out of 200 interns and residents, there were only five women. You took what was dished out and you shut up and drank your beer. We all thought that if you made any noise, we'd be kicked out. Women became renowned in her field for her innovative techniques for correcting limb deformities. The children saw a surgeon with challenges similar to their own using her custom-designed surgical gloves. She drew on her personal experiences to tend to them and their families in a special and distinctive way. By sharing, Dr. So-called Diamond said, she could take some of their loneliness, some of their fear for the future. One of her students, Jerome Reich Mister, who went on to become the chief of orthopedic surgery at Sinai Hospital, said, She had the ability to relate to the kids and their families and give them the best possible expectations. It takes a special person who can speak with authority because she had lived through it. Dr. Sokol Diamond was a professor at the University of Maryland for over 30 years and consulted at many local hospitals. Dr. Libby Sokol Diamond died in 2017 and her impact on medicine in Maryland was widespread.
0: This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we are joined by Becky Whaley and Peter Wisby, both of Genesee Country Village and Museum. We've been talking about the founding of this third largest living history open-air museum in the United States, and their 68 buildings and their massive collection, um, and all the work that it takes to keep this place up. Um, And and Becky, we touched on this a little bit, um, just on how devastating COVID-19 has had an impact on Pretty much every museum. I mean, I, I you know, I think I sort of initially in my head thought of this as many museums, but I can't think of a museum or a historic site that hasn't been impacted by this. What well, are you but- hoping to look like in a year from now? Um, and have there been any? Is there been anything positive that, that's come about all of this? I mean, there's a, a tremendous amount of negative, but are you learning anything about yourselves? Are you finding different ways of reaching people or are there, are there some bright spots to come out of this sort of real pain?
1: You're right. It is hard to look for a bright spot, but, but I think we have found some. So we, we have transitioned a lot of our content to, um, to be online so we have um, tours of buildings that are online now. We are moving towards offering online field trip experiences because we believe that um, schools, if if they do go back in any kind of meaningful way, will not have a lot of time in the fall for field trips. And so, you know, can we Zoom with a class and and offer content that way? Um, we've also had, um, you know, a chance, a real chance for staff to be creative. So um, that's that's one of it, sort of how is content delivered. But also, um, you know, we have a full food service operation, and we also have um, a 19, two nineteenth-century beers that are brewed for us by a, a brewery in Buffalo. And so we uh, switch probably. We started in early April. Maybe we we did curbside pickups on Friday, so you could order dinner from us, and you could get some beer. And we also offered baked goods that come out of our nineteenth century kitchen. We had a big maple sugar program that had to be canceled, and so we had a lot of syrup that we could sell, and so we um, we were able to do that and to. To um, make a, a decent revenue by uh, turning ourselves into a into a restaurant, which we were anyway, but kind of taking advantage of that. So there's been a level of creativity that I think has been um, you know evident in our staff and and very much appreciated. But you know it's still not good. We will um, you know in the time between we closed March 17th and when we reopen July 3rd. We lost hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue, and and that will continue through the rest of the year. We've been lucky. We were the beneficiary of a PPP loan. Um, we have some donors who have stepped up and been tremendous. Um, if we continue on a good path and we are able to stay open, you know, the rest of the year should be okay. We should stabilize, but... I think you know one of the things we've learned with the pandemic is you never know what's coming next, and so it's sort of a fingers crossed at this point. But the other thing that I say about it is, um, where as you said, I don't think there's a museum in the country that hasn't been affected by this, and so there's I take some comfort in the fact that we're all in this together, and so. If when we get to December 31st and we've run a deficit, no one can look at us and say, wait, why did that happen? You know, everybody's going to understand why it happened and hopefully, um, you know, step up to help us or or just realize that it's not because the museum did anything. It, it was the effect of this global pandemic.
0: Yeah, it's 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 just totally... You know, obviously something none none of us have ever dealt with, although, you know, i have I'm curious if, you know, some sites particularly have pivoted and and talked a lot about the history of 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 health and and how our forebearers got through this. and I, I'm curious if that, now is something that you're thinking about, or if you've kind of gone down that road at all, because it is without precedent at least in our lives, but certainly our forebears and ancestors dealt with a lot of disease and suffering and um you know certainly in in the western New York era you know the area there were you know different pandemics and things that that ran through and were pretty rampant we've
2: We've always loved talking about medicine um, it's been kind of one of our Interpretive themes going forward, and, and we really began to uh, speak more about it, especially in the kind of dark period of March and April year in New York State. Um, but settlers coming into the Genesee Country in the 19th century faced something called Genesee Fever, which was a form of mosquito-borne malaria. And then there were crop, uh, cropping um, of uh, cholera epidemics that caused people to uh, have to hunker down. And and so we did see some parallels to the historic record in what uh, both our staff and our visitors were experiencing. I think in some ways, though, we've, we've also been a little luckier than some in that the size of our campus has allowed us um, to be open for walkers early on in um, May and June. We were able to not open the buildings, but allow people to get out and stretch their legs and to walk around um, the campus and to kind of explore on their own. And they, they found that really refreshing to at least be able to see something Uh, and to experience the the buildings at a time when it was very quiet. Um, And then we've kind of gradually been able to reopen. I know there are many museums that are just, you know, open for their first visitors in the last two weeks. And we've been able to... At least kind of test our capacity and to grow a little bit uh, over the course of almost four to six weeks um, by kind of gradually offering new services from simply walking a closed campus to beginning to offer food service to now having, um, you know, ha- about half to uh, two thirds of the buildings open for viewing.
0: Fantastic. I mean, obviously, there's there's a lot of value in place, and I think that that is is becoming very apparent to a lot of people, and that you know they miss places like yours, or uh, they enjoy getting out and stretching their legs in them, and and hopefully that's something that people will remember and and, and take with them moving forward. So um, let's do a little bit of uh, some rapid fire questions, and maybe when I ask these, just so that we can keep you guys from jumping on top of each other we'll do we'll go Becky Peter um on the answers here so um favorite building on the site it's like picking a ch- favorite child but um <laughs> curious if you have it one it
1: is i i do say it is like picking a child but um i i usually say that my favorite building is the Livingston Becker's house because it's the um, Big white building, uh, big white house on our main village square. And it has a very interesting history of how it got to the museum. It's the only house that came from um, the city of Rochester. But then, um, about now, I guess it's been. 24 years ago, it had a, a devastating fire, and um, Peter actually was the the curator for part of the reconstruction project. and And when you look at it now, and you think this building was dismantled in 1955, I think stored in a warehouse, brought back, and had a fire, and looks the way it is now, it's pretty amazing.
0: I think that that's a great answer, Peter.
1: Um, I like some of our more vernacular buildings. We have some
2: log structures. Um, The two-story Kiefer House actually um, was a German log house, but uh, built by Marylanders who settled in the Genesee country in Rush, New York. Western New York is really interesting because it was settled by a mix of both New Englanders coming west, and then also um, Colonel Rochester and others who came up from Maryland and, uh, and settled in, in the region as well. So they both brought kind of different vernacular uh, uh, building traditions and uh, town building scales.
0: Well, I like that answer. I mean, you're kind of playing play to the uh, the audience here, but, but good job on finding a Maryland connection at Genesee Country Village. Um, so, I like that. Um, so, favorite historic breed of animal? And you know, I was actually going to ask, I wasn't sure if this is appropriate or not, least favorite breed. So, I don't know if you have any troublemakers. I mean, you could go either way on this one. Um, but Becky, do you have a favorite and or least favorite?
1: Um, I think mine would be the same. Um, we have two sets of oxen, one set who is nine years old and one who is three. And they are um, they are all characters and people love to see them, but they um, also have a habit of getting out and um, wandering around particularly at night. And so that makes them at times my least favorite.
0: Now, now, do you live well. on? Do you live on site? Are you responsible for going and catching them?
1: <laughs> I am not. No, I. Uh, we have we have full time, twenty um, four hour security who and farmers who are responsible. Normally, they don't go very far. It's very much a case of you know the grass is greener on the other side of the fence, but um, they they like to get out and wander around.
0: Well, I knew that executive directors always have other duties as assigned. I wasn't sure if Oxen Wrangler was one of them.
1: <laughs> I, th- I think goodness.
2: No, at one point or another, had to wrangle turkeys back into their pets as well.
0: Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So do you have a favorite breed there, Peter?
2: Well, I think one of, the, one of the special things for us is we have a flock of Hog Island sheep, which are... Uh, a uh, endangered sheep breed that was um, uh, it was sort of descended from feral sheep and um, w- were kept on an island um, off the Virginia coastline until they were rehoused, and so they they still are very um, uh, weather hardy. They keep their tails. They still have horns, um, and they create a look that is unusual on the landscape. So you'll find hog island sheep in historic sites like um, Mount Vernon and Williamsburg and elsewhere. And so our sheep breed uh, really does attract a lot of attention. um, And we help to, in our uh, propagation, we help to also send the, the sheep further out into other living history
0: sites. Very cool. Well, we'll have to keep an eye out for those next time I visit. Um, favorite time to visit and/or be in the village? Do you have a favorite time of the year?
1: Um, I like being there in the evening um, when people are there or not there, but it's it's a different time. You know, most most people come to visit between ten and four, and they see um, sort of a certain a certain view. But when you come at night and especially in a great summer night when the the sun is still out or it's starting to go down. It's just beautiful. And the light is different and you get an appreciation for um, a different appreciation for the buildings and what it must have been like to live in them and that kind of thing. And for me, I think, it, you know, it, it's lovely in the springtime. We
2: have wonderful magnolias and uh, uh, dogwood and blooming trees but then also, we, we do a lot with um, historic paint colors, and our white buildings are all various shades of uh, off-white and historic colors in a in a preservation palette. And so when it gets down to uh, sunset, the, the village buildings take on different color changes and, and different glows. And... Uh, Most people, unfortunately, don't get a chance to see that until they do come for an evening program. Um, But it really is kind of a magical time, uh, late in the afternoon into the early evening. And something that uh, photographers and filmmakers who have done shots here really enjoy about the place is that it it has a whole different color change and color palette um, depending on the weather and the time period.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a, obviously a, a beautiful place to visit, and, and you're selling us on coming to one of your uh, evening events, uh, which uh, which I would encourage people to do. So, um, and you, I think, it might have been Becky who mentioned this that obviously you're not you're not looking for and not really interested in new buildings. But is there a type of building or experience you wish the village had, but doesn't yet, or, or maybe even could be in the future?
1: I think I would say, and this is something that we we've, we've talked about, is kind of an area for kids to um, get their hands dirty a little bit more. We know that's something that families are looking for, more hands-on experience. So, i um, trying to, and, and to some extent, we work it into the buildings themselves. But a lot of a lot of museums have kids um, experience areas that. That are available. And so that's something that we might get to thinking about. You know, can they build their own building out of blocks or um, have a more hands on experience with animals? But we'll, we'll put it on our wish list and see what happens. <laughs> and and
2: certainly because of our uh, geographic proximity, we sit up on Flint Hill, we don't have a water source. And so we show crafts and trades in their kind of proto-industrial style, but we don't have mills, we don't have water power or steam power. Uh, we just, um, last year, began to uh, open a telegraph office which allows us to talk about 19th century technology and electricity and uh, Western Union's founding by uh, Hiram Sibley of Rochester. But but we don't talk a lot about technology uh, over the course of the nineteenth century as much as we do about kind of domestic life and um, uh, craft craft technology.
0: Yeah, it's interesting and and an interesting point about the water source. I had never really never really occurred to me, but you're right. Um, you do sit on top of a hill there. Um, so this has all been really interesting. And, and obviously for me, I just love to hear the, the backstory of the place and all the work that goes into keeping it um, such a unique and beautiful historic site and appreciate having you both here with us today. Um, for those who want to learn more, I'll, I'll throw this to Becky. Um, where, where can they learn that? Um, and, and perhaps what could they do right now? No matter where they are, if they're listening and they are impressed by the good work that you're doing and want to help, how can they support you guys right now?
1: Oh, those are excellent questions. Thank you. So um, a great way to stay in touch with us is through our social media channels. We um, have a very active Facebook page. We are um, getting more active on Instagram. And so that's the way to know. Um, we post all kinds of things about events and preservation projects and other activities that are going on. Um, we also have an electronic newsletter that you can sign up for on our website, um, gcb.org, like Genesee Country village and there's a lot of information on the website as well as well as um, a location you can make a donation or you could purchase a membership as well if you um, live near us and would come visit
0: and i also seem to remember that there's like a pie plate deal going on right now is that right too have you sold out of those yet? Uh,
1: there is so uh, nope, we're not quite, but they've been selling um, very rapidly. So one of our potters in quarantine um, created a series of numbered pie plates that um, are also inscribed on the back with the year and a and a little um, thank you statement. So you can um, buy, they're $40 each. They're available also on our website and you can buy one of those and help support us too.
0: So there's a lot of cool ways and, and some of which end up with a pie. So, I mean, if you don't support Genesee Country Village yep. right now, it's your own fault. Um, so definitely go out and do that. And, and museums like this um, need all of our support and hopefully those listening will go out and do that um, and help you guys out a little bit. Um, before we go, um, since uh, Becky led off on the last one there, we'll go Peter and then Becky. Outside of Genesee Country Village, I'll give you that caveat so you don't feel like you're um, you know, a, a traitor to the cause, what is your favorite historic site or place?
2: Oh, that's a, that is a very tough question. Um, there are so many different elements, I, and I've been kind of pondering that a little bit. Um, but I think one, I like places that you can kind of feel the history around it. And, uh, one of my kind of go-to places when I'm in Philadelphia, which itself has tons of wonderful spaces, I love walking through Elfris Alley, um, still occupied by people who, you know live in that space, but it's really a wonderful sense of 18th century Philadelphia and 18th century living. So, you know, I hope they don't mind visitors like me just sort of wandering up and down their, their street. I think they're pretty used to it. Um, but you know, the, the mind and the imagination can run wild and think about all the people who've trod those spaces and to seeing the, see those house, uh, house fronts and, and to, it still gives you a, kind of a, a throwback feeling, uh, of time travel.
0: I think it's a, a fantastic example, Elfros Alley. Um, Becky, outside of the village.
1: Um... Probably my favorite um, place, my favorite living history museum, is Shelburne Museum outside of Burlington. I went to college just out of there and um, just spent some time there when I was in college. But they just um, they have a very interesting and eclectic collection. And it's just a beautiful location. And it always makes me feel a little better being there. Because we, we sometimes struggle with, how does the art gallery tie in with the village? And so when I see, you know, everything that they have there, I think maybe we don't need to figure out how to make that happen. You just have to make it a fun, interesting place for people to visit. And it's okay.
0: Yeah. I think that that's a, a, a great analogy there and I would concur that uh, don't overthink it because Genesee Country Village is a fantastic place to be and, and a fun place to visit. Um, so this has been so much fun and uh, I wish you guys all the best. I hope people go to gcv.org and uh, make a quick donation, uh, buy a pie plate, become a member, um, and go and visit uh, when the time feels right and people are back out on the road. Um, thank you guys both for joining us today. It's been so much fun.
1: Thank you. Thanks for listening to Preserve Cast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving.